wide awake now? Great job singing this morning. Um, we have been in a series looking at the parables of Jesus. We started this back in probably July, I think. It's in October. Um, my plan was to go a couple of more weeks in Luke looking at some more of the parables. But what I realized this week as I was kind of looking ahead is that the parables I was looking at in Luke are actually repeated what I want to cover in the end of Matthew's gospel. Um, so as of today, uh, this is our last of the parables of Jesus for a little while. We're going to jump into a new series next week for about four or five weeks looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. That should be interesting. It's a philosopher's look at life. And so I'm excited to be able to share some of that with you. And then we'll get into Thanksgiving and Christmas and then pick back up the parables of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew at the first of the year where Jesus begins this whole treatise, this whole um, address of the end of the age and what the parables have to say about that. So look forward to sharing some of that with you. Today, again, we come to the last of the parables from Luke's Gospel. Um, our parable is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Um, our text comes from Luke chapter 18. We'll be reading verses 10 through 13. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 13. And as soon as I find it, we'll get started. All right, here we go. Beginning at verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You may be seated. All right, before we get into this parable, I've got a slide for you here, and this is just a little bit of... Um, literary context, if you would. Remember, Luke is compiling stories from the life of the Lord Jesus, and so he puts together three stories here that all speak to the same issue. Starting in Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 9, he tells this parable, he shares this parable that the Lord Jesus had shared of the Pharisee and the tax collector with a teaching that results. And then after that, Luke presents this uh, story about how these little children come to Jesus and he says, you see the faith that these little kids have in me? That's the kind of faith that you need to have when it comes to relationship with me. And then finally, it comes to the rich, young, the rich ruler who says in Luke chapter 18 and verse 18, he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if we can jump back to that slide, because I don't think I told the guys back at the back to do that. All three of these stories belong together in one unit, and they're all talking about the same issue. And the issue is what? Eternal life. So as we go through this parable of the uh, Pharisee and the tax collector, just keep in mind that that is the issue that is in front of us that Jesus is trying to address, the issue of eternal life. All right, let's take a look at the parable. We'll start back at verse 9. Luke opens with this report. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Uh, I've got a slide for you here. And the word that is uh, righteous there uh, in the Greek is actually the word diakoneo. And diakoneo is a word that talks, it was a courtroom word. And it was used whenever the judge would gavel down and say, not guilty. He would see, say diakoneo, that is, this person is innocent. He declares this person innocent of all wrongdoing. 
Luke reports that there were some Jews who trusted in themselves, that is, who trusted in their own good works, who trusted in their own religious performance as the basis for gaining God's acceptance, as the basis for gaining access into heaven, as the basis for gaining God's favor and God's acceptance. They brought to God their own good works, their own diakoneo, their own righteousness. Verse 10, there are two characters in this story. He mentions they're a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Let's start with the Pharisee. Pharisees were known as the Navy Seals among rabbis of Jesus' day. These guys were intense. All right, so there's 613 Jewish laws, and the Pharisees bragged that they kept every one of them. Right? And they, they were so uh, fanatical about keeping these laws of Moses. Uh, and again, what, what they were trying to do by doing this, they were trying to earn the favor and the acceptance of Almighty God. Remember verse 9, back to verse 9, it said, they were the, there were some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. The Pharisees looked to those 613 laws and thought, if I can observe those strictly, if I can observe those better than anybody else, then certainly when I show up to heaven, God will have to accept me. God will have to let me in. Now, besides legalism, one unfortunate side effect of this kind of rigorous pursuit of self-justification is arrogance. The, the Pharisees began to look down their proverbial noses at the rest of society and say, you know what, I keep 613 laws, do you? And so they would look around at everybody else and compare themselves to everybody else and again say, you know what, I'm elevated. I'm much, more, I'm much better than the rest of everybody else. And so again, God's got to let me into heaven. They had a holier-than-thou attitude. Listen to this Pharisee pray this way, verse, verse 11. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. <laughs> I'm sure he was a real peach to be around, right? Extortioners, unjust, that is evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector standing over there. Could you imagine standing in church and praying about somebody else who's there and being like, I'm glad I'm not like him. I'm glad I'm not like her. Again, that's kind of the scenario. You almost think Jesus has a little sense of humor. And then he lists off a couple, for instances, of why he feels um, he is so superior. Verse 12, he says, I fast twice a week. According to Jewish law, the Jewish people were only supposed to fast one day per year. That was on the Day of Atonement, the day of Yom Kippur. But this guy says, not only do I fast on that day, but I fast every week, and I fast twice every week well in excess of what he's expected to um, um, from the law. He continues, not only do I fast twice a week, but I give tithes, notice the word all here, tithes of all that I get. They were to tithe one-tenth of a person's of their produce, basically their food provisions, and they were supposed to give that food provisions, one-tenth of it to the priests in order to support the priesthood. This guy says, I give one-tenth of all that I receive, something he was not required to do by Jewish law. We might say this guy is a religious overachiever. That's what we have on our hands here. His religious performance was second to none. I ran across a quote this past week. It dates back to the first century. It's part of the Jewish Mishnah. It was a, that, the Mishnah was a collection of Jewish writings dating back to the first, second, and third century. Some of it was oral and then it was written down. Some of it was written. Some of it was a compilation written together by different rabbis. But in any case, they produced this document called the Mishnah. 
And this particular quote comes from Rabbi Simeon ben Jakai. Here's what he has to say. This is a Pharisee, okay? This guy's a Pharisee. And it just gives you the, the, an idea of what Jesus is dealing with here. Rabbi Simeon ben Jakai writes, and I quote, If there were only 30 righteous persons in the world, I, mm-hmm, I and my son should make two of them. He continues, And if there's only one righteous person in the world, I am he. Wow. I mean, incredible, right? He then goes on to write, get this. I thought the first part was bad. My worthiness is so great that during my lifetime, no rainbow need shine in order to ensure immunity from another flood. End of quote. Do you get what this guy just said? Mr. Rainbow says that the great flood Uh, You know, God put that rainbow in the sky to remind all of us that he was never again going to destroy the earth. This guy says, during my lifetime, there's no need for a rainbow to shine because I'm here, right? God will never destroy the earth because I'm here. Y'all have me. Now, not all Pharisees were this arrogant nor this incorrigible, but for the ones who were, Jesus tells this parable. He's trying to jolt these people back into reality. Right? He's trying to give them a little sense of some humble pie so that they'll get off this performance trip that they're on. So that's character number one in the story, the arrogant rabbi. Let's meet character number two. Really two opposite extremes of individuals here. Verse 13 says, but the tax collector. Tax collectors were employees of the Roman occupying government. They were employees of the Roman. Remember, the Romans had come in. They had taken over the land of Judea, the land of Israel. They were running the show there. Their soldiers were on the ground to make sure that the people there were submitted to the Roman government. And a tax collector worked for that Roman occupying force in the form of taking tribute or taxes. They were considered traitors of their own people. They were working for the opposition. Now, in addition to being traitors, tax collectors enriched themselves by extracting more than the tribute required by the Roman occupying government. So they were both traitors and thieves. In Jesus' story, the tax collector arrives at the temple. Notice, however, the difference in his attitude when compared to that of the Pharisee. Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, didn't even feel that he could come approach to where God was. Standing far off, he would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but instead beat his breast, a sign of agony and brokenness. This man is gripped by his sin and the offense of his life. Notice the exclamation point at the end of his statement. I mean, it's almost as this this guy cries this out. I'm not going to yell it this morning, but it's almost as if he does. Standing there in the temple, he cries out, God, be merciful to me a what? A sinner. He calls himself what he is. This tax collector pulls no punches. When he looks at the man in the mirror, he is not self-deceived. He offers no excuses. He offers no good works because all of his grades in the behavioral grade book are zeros. And he knows it. All he can do is to plead with God for mercy. And that's what he does. He throws himself upon the mercies of God. This guy's taken the advice of the psalmist David who writes in Psalm 51 and verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. 
And so this tax collector arrives not appealing to his religious performance or to his good behavior or how many days he had fasted that week, but rather he approaches God broken. He approaches God with a humble heart, head down, eyes on the floor, admitting his sinfulness, admitting he's fallen short. He throws himself upon the mercy of God. If someone were to ask this guy, why should God let you into heaven? His response would be, he shouldn't. He shouldn't. I can give no reason why I deserve to go to heaven. Now, those are two characters in Jesus' story. But here's a question that has yet to be answered. Got a slide for you here. And that question is, which of these two men does God accept? I mean, you got the one guy who his performance is outstanding. It's second to none. And then you have this other fellow who, you know, he's been rotten, right? Let's just be honest. The tax collector's been horribly rotten. I know that the, Mr. Rainbow has been arrogant, but again, his, his performance has been exceptional. And I'm sure Jesus' audience was thinking about that fellow, the Pharisee, thinking, well, certainly the pastor, right? Certainly the rabbi, he's going to make it into heaven. I mean, he's, he's closer to God than the rest of us are. Look at his life, right? He's so behaviorally good. Certainly he was declared righteous. He's got a more impressive resume than any of the rest of us. Now compare that with the tax collector who lived a rotten, traitorous, inexcusable lifestyle. Again, Jesus' audience would have said, certainly if anybody doesn't get into heaven, it'd be that guy. Why, he'd probably even sell out his own mom in order to make a dime. Probably did. Certainly God won't accept him. So which is it? Which man does God accept? Who gets eternal life? Well, we don't have to speculate our thoughts, who we think deserves it, who we think should get there. Jesus gives us the answer. Verse 14. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, referring to the tax collector, went down to his house justified. Interestingly enough, the word there in the Greek is the same word back in verse 9, diakoneo, or diakao. Same word. It's translated righteous. In verse 9, it's translated justified here in verse 14. But it's the same word. He's declared gavel down, not guilty. Gavel down as innocent. Um, it, the one whom God says is innocent is this tax collector, which means Mr. Religious Performance, while he may have impressed the world, he did not impress God. Jesus goes on to say in verse 14, last bit of the passage here, for everyone who exalts himself like the Pharisee will be humbled. Jesus doesn't mean in the natural course of life. He's referring here to eternal life. Again, the narrative context, this whole passage is about how do you get to heaven? How do you get eternal life? For everyone who exalts himself like that Pharisee will be humbled. Some people um, won't be humbled in this life, but one day when they stand before Almighty God, they'll discover that all their reasons for boasting amount to nothing. But the one who humbles himself, Jesus says, will be exalted. That is, will receive the reward of eternal life in heaven. Now that's the conclusion of our passage, and so that means it's time for us to stop here and ask the question we ask week in and week out. 
What difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I, I, Jesus did paint the picture of two extremes, didn't he? Right? You have the Pharisee on the one hand with all of his performance, outstanding. And then you have this tax collector who pretty much flopped at every moral law of God. And Jesus says of the two, hey, who gets to go to heaven? The, the tax collector does. You say, but Gordon, I don't, I'm neither one of those extremes, right? So what difference does any of this have to do with me? Well, that's a good question. Let's see if we can answer that. If we were to stop and ask people on the street this question, got a slide for you here. Why should God let you into heaven? The overwhelming response that you'd hear would be, because I'm a good person, right? Uh, you probably even hear that from a lot of church members, people that attend church on Sundays. You ask them, why do you think God, God should let you into heaven? Well, because, you know, I've done a good, I've been a good person. And so if you were to press them on it, well, what makes you good? They would begin to cite off, you know, well, I, I volunteered to pick up trash on the side of the road one time. And I went down to the local food pantry and I helped work there and serve people who were much less fortunate than myself. Um, I, you know, anytime one of my family members, one of my neighbors had a need, I was always there to help them meet those needs. I had a hard work ethic throughout my life. I was faithful to my family. Basically, what they're doing is they're comparing themselves to bad people, and they're saying, I'm glad I'm not like those other people. I'm a good person. Why should you go to heaven? Because I'm not like, you know, the rest of folks. Friends, that sounds eerily familiar to I fasted twice a week. And I gave a tenth of all that I had. Again, I'm glad I'm not like other people. I'm a good person. The point that Jesus is saying here is that we need to approach God. When we approach God, that that approach of saying, I'm a good person, it won't work with God. His point is that salvation and eternal life, being diakaiao, cannot be earned. Let me say that again. Eternal life cannot be earned. Friends, that's what Jesus is trying to communicate to these arrogant rabbis here. No amount of religious performance or good works will get us eternal life. God, Paul writes Ephesians 2 at verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith in Jesus and this is not your own doing. You didn't save yourself. It's the gift of God. Verse 9, not a result of works, of religious performance, so that no one can boast. How different Paul's perspective is than that of the Pharisee. The Pharisee was trusting in himself for righteousness. Paul says, salvation is a gift from God. It is not something that we earn. Again, over in Romans 5 and verse 1, the testimony of Scripture, Paul writes, since we have been justified, diakaao, since we have been justified or declared not guilty by what? By works? By showing up at church X number of Sundays per year? by putting on a good show for everybody and impressing the world with our good works? No, Paul says we are justified by faith. Back in Romans 3 and verse 28, Paul writes, For we hold that one is justified, diakao, by faith 
apart from works of the law. Friends, you cannot be any more clear than that right there. Good works, religious performance, being a good person will not get you into heaven. Eternal life cannot be earned. So how do we get it? Well, this tax collector offers us three things about how we approach God for eternal life. Number one, the tax collector approached God admitting his sin. If you remember back in verse 13, it said, he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Again, this guy's pulling no punches. He's not trying to be somebody that he's not. He's not trying to present somebody to God that God knows he's not. This guy wasn't trying to gloss over the ugly. Rather, he approached the presence of God brokenhearted about his sinfulness. He was grieving about the decisions he had made. This man was under deep conviction. This man stood at a distance. He kept his eyes on the floor, wouldn't even look up to heaven. He beat his breast. In my uh, Thursday morning Bible study, our group of guys that get together, uh, we were talking about this, and one of the guys compared it to um, two different kinds of kids. You know, you have children that sometimes get caught, haven't done something wrong. And you have the one kid who just looks you right in the eyes, and they're defiant, and they won't admit that they've done anything wrong. I don't see what the problem was here. No, Dad, I didn't do it. I don't know what you're talking about. And they're just defiant about it. But then you have the other kid that when you do something wrong and you look at them, right, their eyes go to the floor. They're, I mean, they're, they're just they're stuck on their toes, and they're that way. And everything about their body language says, you know, that they're, they're sad about what it is that they've done. They're, they're repentant about what it is that they've done. Their whole demeanor speaks not of defiance but of humility and sorrowfulness, and that is this tax collector. That is the attitude that God is looking for when we approach him for eternal life. Again, Psalm 51 and verse 17 reads, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Jesus said it this way, Luke 18 and verse 14, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You say, Gordon, if I take this kind of attitude, though, right, if I just, am I walk around like that all the time, I'm going to be depressed, Right? I, what good am I going to be to get anything done if I'm just walking around feeling sorrowful for myself all the time, feeling sorry about what I've done all the time? If that's the attitude that God wants me to have, isn't that just going to lead me to being depressed? Well, no, actually, it's just the opposite. Because when we come to God with our eyes on our toes, on our knees, humbly before him, and then the mercies of God begin to flow into your life, friends, the result of that is not depression. The result of that is joy. Because we wake up every day realizing that we've been saved. We wake up every day realizing that we've been forgiven of all of our sins. That all of the penalty that was due to us is now on the Lord Jesus. And his blood has washed us free and we're set free. And friends, that just is a, abundant joy begins to uh, bubble up into us. And we start looking at everybody in the eyeballs. And we're happy wherever we go all the time, but we're happy a lot of the time wherever we go. As we remember our salvation, we remember what Jesus has done for us, we know that we have been forgiven. Again, joy is the result of this, not depression. So number one, the first way to approach God for eternal life is to come on our knees admitting our sin, being honest about the man or woman in the mirror. Number two, the second way to approach God for eternal life that we learn from this tax collector is to come with an empty resume with an empty resume 
Remember how the Pharisee pulled out his resume and listed off his good behavior and his exceptional behavior? Was God impressed with that? Did Jesus say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I mean, that's one of ours, right? No, Jesus was not impressed with that at all. And so the message to us is if God wasn't impressed with the Pharisee then what, and his amazing, exceptional, second-to-none performance, then what makes him think God's going to be impressed with what I bring to the table? Right? I, I mean, I, maybe I do a lot of good things, but boy, 613 laws, I don't, I don't quite compare to that. What makes God think if God's not going to be impressed by that, what makes me think God's going to be impressed with what I bring? Again, this Pharisee obeyed all 613 laws. Have we kept all those? Of course not. Again, if God wasn't impressed with that Pharisee, then we're kidding ourselves if we think God's going to be impressed with our resume. Friends, when we come to God for eternal life, we need to arrive like this tax collector. Not pointing to the good that we've done. Not listing off, hey God, you know, I volunteered, I helped out, I did all those sorts of things. I had a hard work ethic, I was faithful to my family. Boom, 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 boom. Hey, here I am, right? No, that's not the way this works, friends. Like the tax collector, those good works can never cleanse a sin-stained heart. Those good works will never be good enough. They'll never put us back into diakao, into right standing with a holy God of the universe. Again, we cannot earn our way into heaven. Thus, we need to empty out our hands, empty out our mouth of whatever reasons we ought to give or we would give, of why God should let us into heaven. And the only response to the question, why should God let us into heaven, is he shouldn't. He shouldn't. There's nothing that I've done that deserves him to allow me into heaven. Number three, and finally, how should we approach God? Number one, we should come to God admitting our sin. Number two, we should come to God with hands, I'm sorry, with a resume that is empty. And number three, we should come to God. We should come to God. You say, what do you mean by that? I mean, what are we talking about here? Well, there are a lot of people in the world who will admit that they're sinful. And there's a lot of people in the world who will say, you know, my resume is really not all that impressive. When I look across the body of work in my life. But there's a lot of people in the world who won't then come to God. Isn't that what the tax collector did? He shows up at the temple. He's there to make his sacrifices. He recognizes, I'm not going to get into heaven by my merit. I'm not going to get into heaven by my resume. i got to come to God if I want to get there. Just admitting that we're sinful, just admitting that our good works fall short, friends, that won't grant us eternal life. Instead, we have to do what this tax collector did. We actually have to go to God. Paul writes it, says it this way, Romans 10 and verse 9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then a few verses later, verse 13, Paul writes, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The point is, you got to call on the name of of the Lord. Calling on Buddha won't get you to heaven. Confucius, Confucius, it won't get you there. Nor will calling on Allah, eternal life in heaven, none of those can get you there. We have to call on the name of the Lord. We have to come to the living Christ of the universe, put our hope and our trust for eternity, not in our good works, not in our accomplishments, but rather in the accomplishment that the Lord Jesus made for us on the cross. Jesus said it this way, John 14 and verse 6, no one comes to the Father. Where's the Father? He's in heaven. He's saying nobody gets to heaven but through me.
His name's the only name that'll work. The Apostle Peter, preaching to the Jews about the Lord Jesus, said, Acts 4 and verse 12, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. John, writing to the early church, said, 1 John 5 and verse 11, and this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this eternal life is in his Son. Verse 12, that whosoever has the Son has eternal life. And whoever does not have the Son does not have eternal life. Again, I don't know how you could be any more clear than that. This is the consistent and unequivocal teaching of the Scriptures. Eternal life is found in putting our faith and hope and our trust for eternity in what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us, plus nothing else. It's as the hymn writer said, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. All right, let's wrap this up. If someone were to approach you on the street and ask you, why should God let you into heaven? The correct response is, number one, to say, you know what? I'm a sinner. And I know that there's, there's nothing that I fall short, right? Romans 3 and verse 23, for all have fallen short of the glory of God, and I know that I fall short. Number two, to offer no resume of good works, no self-right, no amount of self-righteousness is going to cut it. And then finally, number three, throwing our hope, our trust, our faith for eternity in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, plus nothing else. Friends, this is the wonderful news. We call it good, right? It's, it's so much more than good. I'd like to do a digging into that word one day, the Greek word good. <laughs> I bet it means wonderful. <laughs> it's wonderful news, right? The wonderful news. Our God is not on a performance trip. He doesn't say, when you hit this mark, when you get this good, then we'll talk. No, our God just says, come. Come as you are. And that's the invitation. We bring, we come with our hands empty, right? Our resume, throw it away. I just need to show up and throw myself upon the mercy of God. Jesus has already done all the work. Isn't that beautiful? That's the good news of the gospel. Now all I must do is put my faith and my trust for eternity in what he accomplished on my behalf. And friends, the Bible says so clearly, so unequivocally, you will have eternal life. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious God, thank you for, one, making it simple. That requires humility on our part, though. To avoid the temptation of bringing our prominence and our performance to the equation. Jesus, it's what you did. It's all about what you did. Lord, as we come around this table today, it is a reminder to us that your body was broken and your blood was poured out on our behalf. Salvation can be found in no other name. Thank you for that this morning. Lord, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would stir and work in our hearts. Encourage us where you know we need it. Speak to us, we pray, in these quiet moments. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.